Hello, and welcome to this special episode of uh, what we now call the Zero Knowledge Podcast. We have a name. Woo! So uh, the plan is to do a three-part episode, uh, probably a three-part episode, on uh, decentralized storage. And yeah, uh, my name's Anna. I'm Frederick. Uh, And today what we wanted to talk about was, we're going to start with the history of P2P technologies maybe touch a little bit on cloud and definitely lead into how some of the emerging file storage protocols differ from what we've seen before. Um, Frederick, where do you want to start? What's the first thing that you remember about file sharing? Where did your internet (laughs) career start? (laughs) I really like that question. It's this topic has been very personal to me. Uh, my, the first thing that got me interested in technology was Napster. And I don't think I'm alone in that, but that was the thing that really blew my mind, made me realize how like incredibly cool and disruptive and important these types of technologies could be. And that happened to be a technology that was a P2P um, file sharing technology. So I would say that would be my very beginning my, the very first uh, thing I remember about P2P technology. I don't remember exactly how I got it. I wish I did. I wonder if it wasn't like somebody told me or I had read about it. Like, I don't remember that part of it, but it was definitely Napster. Yeah. I mean, the story is similar for me. I think I, I would say I got into computers and, and stuff with gaming and games, um, playing games as a kid. Um, but really like getting involved more with the internet, certainly through um, that era of like discovering music. And like, I remember like downloading stand-up comedy bits and listening to that. And like, just you, you would find such weird things. And it was super fascinating and interesting. Um, and uh, I don't know why, like, I was I was too late to this for the Usenet days. So like I came to the scene after Usenet, uh, but I mean after the peak of Usenet, Usenet still exists, obviously. Um, but um, I was certainly involved. Like I was a heavy uh, IRC user uh, in the early mm-hmm. days, and I think that's probably how I got involved in a lot of file sharing stuff and P2P technology in general was IRC first and then sort of um, starting to build websites and my own website and like um, really like living that decentralized thing of like you you create an HTML file and you install a web server on your computer and you serve it up like no sane person would do today. I mean, I think from the reason I, I was thinking a lot about this this week, uh, one of the reasons why Napster and this kind of technology had such an impact on me was that I actually had experienced the time before it, um, especially like specifically in in terms of music sharing, actually just gaining access to mu- to music. I was old enough by the time Napster came out that I, I did love music and I had sort of, I understood how music was distributed and I was buying CDs and burning CDs and trying to collect magazines that would have had these extra CDs in them. Like I, I, I was interested enough in this medium 
And then at that moment where I was, you know, starting to develop taste, starting to become really curious about types of music that I couldn't necessarily get access to in Montreal, where I'm from, um, right at that moment, Napster lands in my lap. And it was like, <laughs> it was insane. It was like my jaw just would have dropped. I would have been like, I can have anything. It was, it was really special. And I think that, that sort of just, that incredible like eye-opening experience that uh, that ability all of a sudden to see everything yeah and like you're connected to the world in a completely different way that yeah, you, yeah there's other people out there and you can discover what they like and and uh and a connectedness that me personally i'd never seen before like uh, like i mentioned with irc like getting to know people in different places in the world was completely foreign and like something that's just hadn't happened in my life before so wow. um it's cool <laughs> um but yeah and i think so what happened right around then was i i definitely started to study it like i actually wanted to understand how that was working how uh napster specifically was holding data how things were being shared um i guess i got to see i i, I don't remember really now exactly what the protocol looks like but i do know that like i was following as that was starting to evolve as we started to see things emerge like, I mean, specifically Nutella, that's the one that I actually feel I understood the best and got really excited about, actually started to learn how um, data was, packages were actually being distributed. Um, but yeah, what to me at that era, what it was like was like you had Napster, you heard that Napster was about to be shut down, you had to jump. And so you went to Mor I went to Morpheus, I think other people would have gone to something else. You heard that Morpheus was about to get cracked down on and then you jumped. And there was this period where almost every six months you were, uh, at least in my experience, I was every six months I was switching to another, mostly like an application. Um, I now uh, have recently found out that Nutella actually was underlying Morpheus, which was kind of interesting to me. Uh, I think at the end I landed on something like a Nutella client that was called Nutella. Like I was very clearly branded, but I also understand that that's a protocol. Um, I... Nutella itself has kind of a cool history. I, I, I want to talk about it for just a second because I think this is a little bit reflective of what we're seeing right now where like something is built for whatever reason, released into the world and can kind of not be stopped. And Nutella has a bit of a similar story where uh, it was created by a company called Nullsoft right around 2000. Uh, and Nullsoft had just been bought by AOL the protocol was apparently released by accident and had thousands of downloads within the first day or so. AOL pulled the plug and they actually removed that, um, but because it was out in the wild, somebody was able to reverse engineer it and it just sort of went free. That's, Obviously that's to cool, the yeah. chagrin of all content owners around the world. Um, <laughs> an, an interesting, I, uh, I think, addition maybe to those who don't know is Nullsoft is the company behind Winamp, like one of the most popular music players at the time. And I, it wouldn't be totally surprised. Like I have no foundation for saying this whatsoever, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if they were actually trying to build some sort of kind of uh, Spotify-like music listening thing network um 
and then it just happened to like be released completely free and people could use it without restriction in any way they wanted to. It went horribly, horribly <laughs> <Yeah>. wrong for them. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Apparently, so when Nutella was created, they also had planned on releasing it under this general public license, GNU, um, but that was scrapped. And I, yeah, I, I don't know the legalities of that, but it does suggest that maybe they weren't quite Maybe they weren't trying to be quite so private with it. It sounds like there was something where they wanted to share it a little bit, but maybe. It's a good, it's a good question. It could also be, I mean, if they were bought by AOL, and you know, AOL obviously wouldn't want this. But True. Maybe AOL was trying to kill it, and someone inside was trying to not kill it. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember though that time where it was like, do you did you also experience that where you had to jump from? Yeah, certainly. I think uh, not. So I was more like I, I remember using Napster a lot. And then I probably was using Napster and Casa in parallel. I, th I think they existed in parallel. I'm not sure. But I remember using both did, of yeah. them. And at some point, yeah, there was this talk of like, oh, it's not going to work out. They're going to be shut down or whatever. And uh, at that time, among my peers was um, a program called Direct Connect. Um, or usually abbreviated DC or DC++. Uh, the++ plus plus variant was just a different version that had better UX, I suppose. And the DC system was all built around having a centralized server uh, that listed peers and then you can, could connect to the peers. But um, so you, you, it, it got a bit of the same feeling as an IRC server where you kind of joined a particular channel or server and you kind of you, most people would have their like home server where they kind of hung out, uh, but others would just kind of randomly browse and find open servers to join and see what there was there. Um, and I like it was quite a big deal in Sweden at the time where um, like apartment buildings could have their own DC++ server so that everyone on the local area network within the building could share files with each other quickly. Um, and I was um, from 2004 forward, I think, I was working at DreamHack, uh, so a really big uh, LAN party here in Sweden. And um, I, like the reason, in my opinion, that DreamHack became popular and like now has 10, 10 11, 12,000 participants, I think, um, is because they would set up DC++ servers for the entire LAN and you like you join 6,000 people on a network and you share at gigabit speeds with each other. And like people would go there, like they'd buy hard drives before going wow. there specifically just to like fill those drives when they're there. It's, and I think what's so cool about this to me is that like we were the age, we were absolutely the target age <laughs> for this kind of thing. Music, when you're a teenager, in your early 20s, it's like so much fun. It's so important. It defines your identity. Like you will buy extra hard drives. You will go and go through all of these things. And I think for some people that continues throughout their life. For some people it sort of maybe fades a little bit. But like at that time, uh, so many of us were so into it. And it just, it would have introduced us all very quickly to these concepts. Um, and it would have basically, it was like point of no return once you were there. Because there was no way for us to go back to buying music there was no like cds there was no way that we wouldn't 
that we would accept not having that access. Yeah, and it's it's not really it's about the access. It's not about money. Like I would have paid for music. It's just that there was no way for me to discover that music. Like it, it was true. Like I I couldn't pay for it. Like with many of these things, it's literally I could not pay for it. Totally. I I remember those. I mean, really, the early. For, for me, when I was when I was doing some of that early exploration, I remember like learning about world music, learning about rave music from Manchester. That was like a specific one where these like really underground recordings that I would never have had access to in Montreal all of a sudden became something I could have. Um, I think my, I mean, might definitely define my taste in music, redefined it. What I think has happened since though, like there has been this concept raised and it was Juan Bonet in this video, which I think we both really like where he's talking about, I think it's a YC uh, video. And he's talking about a little bit about the history of these protocols as well. And he uses the term, um, the P2P winter. So the period when uh, a lot of these things like, a lot of these uh, con like concept, a lot of these clients had sort of been racing against time and people had been switching around, but at some point it seemed like the big players caught up with them. They were able to put enough fear into like people that they would get sued. They were shutting down a lot of companies and they seemed to have been able to squash it to a degree. I think there's a, the yeah, yeah. And I think there's, there's a couple of things that were actually kind of squashed in that same era and, and sort of really leads to this P2P winter. One is file sharing, but that's really just part of decentralized storage and sharing it. And like I was saying, I was publishing my own website from my own server and for whatever reason, like through cheap services for hosting or, or whatever reason, all that kind of stopped as well. Uh, people wouldn't host their own website. They'd go to MySpace or something and have their website there. And so I think a lot of the decentralized ethos of the internet started becoming more centralized. And I think that the main reason being like on the file sharing part, definitely just legal pressure. But on all the other parts, I think uh, um, a big reason is UX. Like it was so much easier to achieve a good UX by having centralized services. That, I mean, to go back just before we go into the UX, because I agree with you, I think that like in the emerging models that came after, everybody could all of a sudden have a lot of access, you know, even our parents, even the grandparents, like everybody could actually start accessing all of this music specifically or files through these new centralized services. But before that, I want to, like, I actually want to just revisit that end, that point where things started to collapse. Because I, I realize now, like, also when I speak to sort of, like, younger people in the scene, like, they didn't necessarily see what happened. And for me, that was really impactful. It was really important to see what happens when a company, when a technology emerges and there's some big incumbents who don't like it and the tactics that they used to undermine it. And I think it's pretty, it's actually kind of important history to remember because that could always be replicated and it doesn't take the form that you think it will. Like the way, to me, it was like multi-pronged attack against these kinds of technologies. First was to go after the companies. So you had companies being raided and you'd hear these stories of like crazy lawsuits coming against the companies themselves if they could. Napster obviously being like the first and one of the most notorious but a lot of those companies 
like especially if they had anything centralized and anything that could be called like if they had any ownership um, which could be pointed at and said like you are responsible for this loss of revenue um, they could be sued they then went after individuals so they would I don't know if you remember hearing like I don't know if it happened the same way in Sweden but in Montreal like we would hear North America we would hear about people who got these crazy letters from like a content like a like a studio or a music label and it was like directed at an individual yeah I mean I, th I think the letter part happened here as well and, and certainly I would hear about it happening around the world um, it was never something that I was personally worried about, but I, I, I do remember some people I know actually getting letter, letters, but it was everyone here realized it was toothless, like they couldn't actually do anything. Um, but then sort of with um, the Pirate Bay was um, uh, went to court and I think they got a sentence 2009 or so. And then 2010, it was sort of appealed and still said that they would get prison sen sentences. And um, I think at that point, people did kind of like, oh, maybe we should. But I, it's hard to say because at the same, right at the same around that time, like Spotify started appearing and like other services started appearing that like could actually legitimately replace piracy. And so piracy did go down, but I'm not sure if, I'm not exactly sure what the reason is there. But I I certainly, I was never like, I never cared, but I did certainly hear people being more apprehensive after those court cases. I remember it was, there was, so th both, both cases that I'm sort of mentioned, like either attacking the company or attacking the individual, both of those are legal. But there was also like a full PR campaign. I remember those those DVDs that would have at the yeah. beginning the little commercial that said like, car, don't be, yeah, don't be a criminal, which really did not do a good job of dissuading us at all because we were kind of like, oh, cool. <laughs> like crazy music and we're being so badass every time we hit download, yeah. But there was definitely this uh, this campaign to try to get people to recognize it as a crime and to be conscientious of it. I think in the end, it was a combo of legal, a little bit of PR, and then those replacements we were just talking about. Yeah. I think Spotify, I mean, Spotify came quite a bit later. Uh, um, not, not, before not that. Um, <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I mean, you're in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> it was around <laughs> sure. here for a long time, and it was free uh, at the beginning. Um, and I, so I know, or... Uh, some of my acquaintances from DreamHack are the people who also started Spotify. And the, the story of like how they started is kind of interesting because they really just like they went to DreamHack and whatever else, just downloaded every single piece of music they could find in the whole world, put it on a service and like you could listen to and like you could stream anything. And then once they like wanted to turn it into a business, it was sort of like they would have to like I think they still do this, though I'm not 100% sure. But so for a long time, when they didn't have the rights to some specific piece of music, it would just be grayed out and you couldn't play it. But you could see that it was there. And um, it was sort of their tactic to say, like, we can play this music, but we don't have the permission to. <laughs> and then I think that pushed a little bit of like, you know, why can't you play this? And like, 
I don't know, like, no one would go to a label and say, hey, I want to play this on Spotify. So it's, I don't know. But it was, um, in those early days, it was, like, free-for-all. And then, of course, when they wanted to, like, start turning into a business and monetize it and make it legit, uh, they would have to actually get deals in place. And they got a couple of deals with major labels and started actually having good selection of uh, proper music on there. But even before Spotify, there like Apple Music already existed. You could already buy, like back. You could buy well, music. Like, you go yeah. back to like, like go back to that like two thousand three period where there was this real like crackdown and people were like, this is this to me was like the height of like hearing the crazy stories of companies being raided. At least in the states, I know that the Pirate Bay stuff happened after. That was sort of like the last remnant uh, of that earlier period. But around two thousand three. Uh, everything, I remember like all, so many of these services started shutting down or you started to really hear some bad stuff about it or it was being, I, I mean, I don't know if, if this was just rumor, but I feel like it was being flooded with malware and they were trying to like kind of attack it in all these different ways. Um, but then like I, the iPod came out and then the, app, the Apple Music Store came out. And that all of a sudden, even though it was a little more limited and like the quality was better, but it was more limited. You didn't have these like weird recordings that you would have found on, on the sharing sites. But that comes out and it seemed like that was the first time, at least I remember it being a first time that like, wow, there was a replacement, like a direct one-to-one replacement. And it came with this like super cool, quote unquote, device. Um, the quote unquote is on the super cool, not on the device. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the... Um, like that to me just sort of like that was where that big shift happened and just sort of went in that direction, uh, at least in North America. And that sort of plays to this UX thing because all of a sudden it was all of those steps that you would have needed to go through to get that music, to find it, to download it, to put it onto something that you could then listen to. Those were sort of streamlined into one really easy thing and the fact that it was on a centralized server probably wouldn't matter to most people. Um, but that was the downfall a little bit of, I mean, I guess it could have been slightly slower. It was definitely more controlled. You couldn't share the music to the same degree. But on that, that individual experience, it would have been quite a bit easier. And you understand how like the masses would have just been like, well, this is easy. Yeah. And I think that well. goes a little point, a little bit to the point of like, why is this coming back now? And like, what uh, do the new technologies bring? And that is that back in those days, having so Apple could not have launched Apple Music on a decentralized network because there did not exist any form of control and there did not exist any form of um, payments or like incentivization. Um, you, you, there would be no way to pay for it. So it just could not have happened. And now we're starting to see ways to have decentralized payment and decentralized control and, and like um, decentralized authorship or ownership, if you will. Yeah. Tracking to yeah. some degree as well. Um, there was also, I mean, with what we're looking at today, the, the, the reason that we're even having this conversation is that some of the, um, in some of the newer P2P protocols or blockchain technology, you're seeing kind of this idea of um, potential, like these, some of these protocols or some of the products that will be built on these protocols could potentially start to 
compete with cloud hosting as well, like cloud and these centralized services that have developed over the last few years. Um, I'm not as familiar with the emergence of cloud. I don't know if you remember the dates on that, but I feel like it's coming, like at this stage, it's, it seems like that's something that's kind of primed. Like the UX on a lot of the cloud stuff seems really well done. It seems like better than it used to be. There's payment clearly built into it. There's a centralized service that's responsible. Um, but I feel like there's, there is this opportunity with some of the new protocols to take it over. Um, but if, do you know anything, like, do you have any thoughts on the beginnings of cloud? I don't really have. I mean, I, I would categorize cloud hosting into two camps and one is for like industry and, um, businesses hosting things that are on servers that are not their own. Right. So AWS started sometime 2000s and um, I would say got really big mid to late 2000s, maybe. Um, but even before then, like I was saying, I used to host my own website and then, um, you know, GeoCities started hosting everyone's websites for free. And then, you know, they're Heroku started a revolution with Rails on like that, like Heroku was really for me in my career was like the revolutionary moment of, wow, now I can like completely not care about which server this lives on. Like before then you would buy a VPS somewhere and um, like put your stuff on there. And you could argue that that's cloud hosting because it's not your own server, but at the same time, it's sort of, sort of like, uh, it's sort of in between. And I think the it, things were like, even with Amazon, EC2 was a thing, but it was sort of at the same time in between sort of what we define today as cloud hosting. S3 is like pure cloud hosting. You don't have to care what machine it's running on. Like you don't know what the hard drive is or anything behind that facade of S3. And so uh, really when Heroku came out, Heroku is built on top of AWS. And when that like started being a thing, you would just like get pushed to deploy your website and now it's hosted somewhere. I have no idea where, I have no idea where things are stored. I have no idea what server it is. That to me was like when, what I would call like cloud hosting properly. And that happened maybe around 2008 or nine, something like that. And um, then uh, for private individuals like Dropbox was, I think the first really successful case of cloud hosting where, you know, you download and install Dropbox and now suddenly like everything works. You don't have to email files to each other and like uh, things are really convenient. And I think Dropbox probably started 2005 or six or something like that. I think 2006. Really? Was it that early? Yeah, I remember using it 2007 for sure. Because uh, I was using it in college with share like lab reports. with. Um, 2007. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and um, then like iCloud being a thing now where like people host all of their you know, music and, and photos and everything. Um, Drive. And Google Drive, and now, yeah. Um, yeah. For me, Drive really, I mean, Dropbox I used for a period of time and then Drive just killed it because it was just so much more convenient. Yeah. And I found Dropbox 
annoyed, but um, bo both of them like were so, they were so easy. They were so, it, it was so easy all of a sudden to just like be able to. And you didn't uh, have to think about it. I mean, that's, your... that's too, totally. like uh, the hallmark of a good UX is that you are completely unaware of what it's doing. <laughs> and um, I think Dropbox succeeded in that. Like I remember their, that one of the first landing pages they had was that it's uh, this, um, I think it's called Turtle SVN. Um, so a software like versioning system um, that they had built the initial version of Dropbox on and they actually like marketed that, <laughs> that, that it's like, it's uh, like, this is the underlying technology that we're using to make sure that versions don't get lost and you get infinite versioning of this and blah, blah, blah. And if you look at it today, it's just like, you don't have to worry about it. Like you don't have to know about anything at all. And you don't have to understand what it is or what it's doing. Like this will just magically work. And I think that's, uh, I think they learned that, that, uh, people don't care. They don't want to care. Totally. What's neat though, is like right now where the, where the more contemporary technologies are at, they're not at a place. It seems they're not at a place yet where you can start building that kind of application on top of them. Um, so it's almost like we, we got to go back and we got to look again at those, you know, what are those under, what could be those underlying things? How do they work differently? Um, we are, we are stuck I, a little bit in a local optima here of like, we have to make it worse before we can make it better again, I think. Um, mm. or, I mean, at least to, to early adopters, um, honestly, the public, the majority of people will not want to make things worse again. So it has to be made worse for early adopters who then like drive innovation and um, drive things forward enough that it people can make the jump without having it be worse. And then the question is kind of, and this has been the question I've been asking myself for a while. And, and as I learn more about these uh, specifically, and I, I think we've We've referenced them a couple times, but it's the it's definitely the IPFS world. Um, what, like what I tr what I'm trying to understand is like what makes it so significantly different or better. Like why, if it's using a similar concept of uh, like P2P nodes, all of this, why is it better to do it this way? Especially given that we have to go back to the beginning. Um, than something, than what already existed before using like Nutella protocols yeah. and stuff like that. It's hard to argue that there is anything inherently better about it. Um, an interesting sort of piece of information is the BitTorrent protocol and network. Um, and they're, they're kind of different. So BitTorrent uh, can either be centralized around a tracker. So one central server that um, sort of maintains the list of files and its peers, uh, like who, who has this file and pirate Bay was such a tracker. And then there's private trackers if you want to keep like a more gated community, but there's also underlying BitTorrent, And I don't know when this started really, but there's a DHT underlying everything. So a distributed hash table, a big table of files and peers that for everything on the network. And um, I actually saw some stats around um, 
the BitTorrent DHT as it is today, and it includes actually like 20 million, on average, 20 million pairs. So this is a really, really huge hash table of pairs. And um, I would say like IPFS uses the same kind of underlying DHT technology uh, called Kademlia DHT. And they have the potential to build a huge DHT of like hundreds of millions of nodes and what files they have. And um, they add a bunch of useful functionality like saying, I'm gonna peg this content hash and make sure that it's always on my server. Um, you can sort of do replication and things in a way that uh, you can't really do with BitTorrent. BitTorrent is sort of oriented around leachers and cedars and sure you can be a cedar and that's sort of your way of saying i want to replicate this but then you have leachers and, and the, the whole thing is kind of oriented more about around like temporary file sharing whereas ipfs is more oriented around like i have a server i want to host like i want to serve up this website and like you basically make a promise to the world that like I have this content, I'm going to like it's in my interest to serve it up for whatever reason. Like I'm serving up my website, it's in my interest to serve that up. So um, you kind of say on a more permanent level that I have this content. But really, the underlying technology is it's still TCP, it's still DHTs, uh, it's more like what what the spirit of the network is. And um, of course, I don't know if IPFS was started with the idea of Filecoin in mind or if Filecoin came later, like as a re later realization. But with Filecoin in place now, suddenly like the whole picture changes. And I, yeah, I think that this is this kind of going back to what we originally talked about when we were talking about this history and when we were young and what we were really excited about and why we would have actually been running these things, why we would have been spending so much time and resources on it. At the time, it really was just like, oh my God, we have access to something we've never had before. This is amazing. But now for, to, to incentivize people to actually participate, you're going to have to come up with something slightly different because there are, we do have access. The access is not going to be the reason that we we engage in this again necessarily. Um, we will need to see incentives that are more general. That could like like why why would I now uh, want to run? I guess is it called an IPFS node? I actually don't know. <laughs> why would I want to run an IPFS node uh, right now? And I think by introducing something like Filecoin, uh, you actually allow for regular people to start engaging with this technology or at least incentivized to learn how to engage with it. And I think this mixed with like really good UX, if people are able to like do it easily, if there's a very simple deployment of this, um, I think it could be super, super interesting. I think it makes more sense. And, and um, with that incentive layer in place, you can now start replacing paid services like Dropbox or Google Drive, where like you can achieve the same UX and you can do it way cheaper because you're not hosting it on a centralized server with a company that needs to pay salaries. Like you're hosting it on it and like sort of agnostic network where people are just renting out space and anyone can do that. So you're, you're like, 
if you paid for the drive space that you used with Dropbox, it would be essentially free. What you're paying for with Dropbox is the convenience. It's the, the, the service, right? I mean, is you're paying because it's easy to use. Um, you're not paying for storage, really. And if someone went to build a Dropbox clone on top of IPFS, I mean, presumably they do it through open source. Uh, and But let's say they did it in an open source way and they're not introducing like fees to, to use their service, then you are paying for just storage and that's I mean, essentially free. But this idea that the store, like providing storage would pay you back is pretty, I think that's the coolest part of Filecoin is that you, you would be incentivized to, to actually fully participate as hoster, not as streamer, as, as basically one of these nodes that would be doing both, like accepting and... I think there's, uh, there's uh, different camps of people sharing. that are interested for different reasons. And like one camp is just people who want a cheap service to, to use and they want a cheaper Dropbox. The other camp is those that have a bunch of drive space or they, that want to get into the business of hosting stuff and they can like and it's the threshold to get into that business is now so dramatically lower because you're not competing with s3 like that that would be your competitor before now you're like part of a network that competes with s3 <laughs> and that's a lot easier uh, and then i think there's a big camp of people who want to do both so they want to use the network for all their own stuff and for services and they also like in the process of using that have a bunch of drive space that they can rent out and like essentially they're amortizing their own usage of it by renting right. out space on their drives as well i also think one of the reasons i love this example and i know that we're going to in subsequent uh, episodes we're actually going to talk a little bit more about uh, we're going to go a bit deeper into these specific technologies but just sort of as a as a thought off the top of my head it's this really does start to sound like you're going to be like you're going to be participating in a digital life where you start to be able to earn passive income by actually doing what you're doing anyway and this starts to sound a little bit like if there was ever like a ubi this maybe it's just going to be protocol based and i know this has come up a bunch of times but this example in particular is interesting because you can see like a real like a, a pretty soon to be application like it's not three four years in the future where you need more you know, infrastructure built, like this is actually something that could start relatively soon. And already there could be like this, this level of, the same way mining is happening, but this is like, it's so much more, it's so much more of a practical use case to me, like a, a, a use case that could appeal to a much wider range of people. Um, and so this is, yeah, this is, this is a, definitely another reason why I'm, I'm loving this topic. Um, I don't know if you, do you want to talk about anything else? Do you have any other, I think we didn't go too deep on BitTorrent. I, I, I did have one question about like the actual torrenting, this idea of like the breaking down into things. And this is maybe just me not fully understanding uh, if how IPFS is built or what, how it specifically works, but like it isn't necessarily anything to do with bit torrenting it's not, it's not that it's breaking files down into micro pieces and sharing them. No, is no. It? So okay. IPFS is, is uh, at its core modeled around streaming files. So you, you read the file from start to finish. Um, BitTorrent is um, uh, 
uh, oriented around grabbing pieces of a file from different hosts. And that's like really purely to increase speed, uh, download speed. And you could build a torrent, like BitTorrent uh, type protocol on top of IPFS. If you knew that uh, like five different hosts had the same file, you could like um, request pieces of a file from each of them. Um, but th there's nothing, I think that the goal, I, I've been working and looking at libp2p, uh, which is the underlying um, communication protocol for IPFS nodes. And the goal, the main goal of libp2p is to be as general as possible. So it's really like it, it tries to make as few assumptions about what you're trying to do or what you want to do as possible. And so um, I think IPFS tries to have that same goal as well of just being as general as possible. If you, you know, you should be able to build whatever you want on top of IPFS. And if you can't, then they've made a, uh, an assumption that's wrong somewhere and they would certainly want to find that out and try to fix it. Um, I, I wouldn't, I can't say that I've ever seen an assumption that's wrong and that you know has led me to believe I couldn't build something on top of like libp2p but um, it's not to say that there will never be that but it that's the ethos that's like what they're going in with is to try to be as general as possible and I think that's also a little bit of what separates it from BitTorrent and, and other protocols is that the other protocols were started and, and created with a specific purpose in mind. And so the, their design and their terminology and the way they're used is very much oriented around that use case. Whereas with IPFS, yeah. it's always intended to be more general. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to picture what if, if, if one was to create a BitTorrent-like application that sat on IPFS, I guess that's how it yeah, would yeah. work. Um, would it like, is, is speed, would speed be increased by doing that? Is the IPFS decentralized speed good enough? Like, is there a reason why that isn't already at least like speed within is, the protocol lab space, yeah. like built into it? Speed is entirely dependent on, you know, your peers, like how many peers have the file that you want and um, what is their uplink speed? So like, what's their bandwidth? And if you have five pairs that have a file and they have gigabit speeds, then you can down technically download that file at five gigabits if you have no overhead. Um, and that's true of both IPFS and BitTorrent. Like it, it really, it all depends on your peers and their speeds. Um, but if you only have one pair, then you're stuck. Like that's the case in both BitTorrent and, and IPFS. True. Like the, you're entirely constrained to what your peers can give you. But BitTorrent always was always considered faster though, was it not? It was faster because was... you would always be downloading. Like even if something, as I remembered, it was like some, even if, if the file that you were Downloading at that moment was cut off. It wouldn't matter because actually you weren't downloading from one individual. You were downloading from everybody at the same time, and little pieces were being put yeah. together. Um, the, or maybe what? I guess maybe it wasn't speed. Maybe speed was not the asset. It was just reliability. It was the fact that you could pick up from whenever. Yeah, and and I mean speed. 
BitTorrent does have very good speed, but it's not because of BitTorrent. It's because the network is as large as it is. And so, like, if you have a file without seeders, then you're not going to be able to download anything (laughs) or, like, some percentage. Um, And, I mean, with with rare files, that happens quite a lot, that you get stuck at some point. And then when some seeder comes online, they distribute one piece. But if there's, like, 10 leechers and one seeder, then the seeder needs to upload that piece once. One of the leechers now has this piece and they can distribute it to their other pairs. And so um, there's this sort of collaborative downloading that happens. And that same thing can happen in IPFS if you build it that way. But that this is really like what what BitTorrent added at the time because before BitTorrent there wasn't much of this protocol or this stuff going on like you would download from a single host usually yeah. uh, and even if you could resume a file yeah you you it would be interrupted by your first host and then you'd need to find someone else with that file and resume from that point um but yeah I, i'd say the speed of BitTorrent is um due to just the fact that it's a big network and there's usually many people yeah. seeding a file and actually, yeah, I think if, I don't know if you're cool with wrapping here, but I think yeah. that that could lead us to the next one where, you know, there's these concepts of speed, reliability. Uh, there's even this proof of, I feel like we talked about this proof of retrievability, proof of storage, p- proof of replication, a bunch of concepts and schemes that, um, I don't know, maybe we, can, maybe we can go a little bit deeper into some of those topics once we understand these newer protocols in a little bit of a deeper way. Um, For sure. I mean, I, I think that's a, an episode on its own, div- diving into the various proofs that are uh, possible in, in a setup like this. Um, I think it's, it's really that technology and it's the proofs that are new to this space, are like fundamentally new. IPFS is new, but it's not using any new technology. It's really just wrapping up old technology in a new way. Whereas these proofs mm. are like legitimately new, they're innovations and they just never existed before. Cool. All righty then. Thanks, uh, thanks for chatting, Frederick. Thank and- you. And uh, thanks to our <laughs> listeners for listening. Totally. We'll be speaking to you soon about this topic and more.